Well, good morning and welcome to our service. It is so great to have all of you with us here in our sanctuary. Welcome to those of you joining us online. This is going to be our last Sunday in the Gospel of Luke until the fall. We began the Gospel of Luke uh, in the Advent season, actually, and then have been studying these early chapters in winter and spring. We'll take a break for the summer and pick up with the Gospel of Luke again in chapter 11 in September. I'm excited about what we're going to do this summer. Starting next week, we're going to begin a series of topics simply called questions. And we're going to try to address some of the common questions that we have, questions of life, uh, in as much as they can be addressed in the Scripture. Next week, Pastor Sonny Flowers is going to be doing a message called, How Can I Grow Through the Journey of Grief? And we're uh, immediately following that going to be offering a couple of Sunday morning classes on walking through grief, dealing with grief. And so I'm excited about what's ahead this summer. But today we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, a familiar passage known as the parable or the story Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. It is a passage that I think speaks very, very strongly to our vision as a church. And by vision, I'm talking about our vision statement we call our Vision 2025. You'll see the first sentence in the Vision 2025 on the screen. And it reads this way. In the year 2025, River Oaks is known as a church where people have a strong knowledge of the Bible joined with active compassion for those outside of the church. This is the heart of our vision, spiritual growth, discipleship, spiritual formation through the study and learning of the Word of God in the church, leading to active compassion for people outside of the church, discipleship that leads to outreach. This was the way Jesus made disciples. He taught them through his words and his example, and then he sent them out to touch the world. The passage we're going to look at today, as I said, it's familiar. It's a passage about the Samaritan, better known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't believe there has ever been any story told by any human being in the history of existence any single story told that has had a greater impact on the showing of compassion to needy people than Jesus' account of the Good Samaritan. Now think about this for a moment. 2,000 years ago, nobody's videoing it or making an audio recording. Jesus is teaching a, a group of people, and he just shares this short parable about... Uh, this man that falls into the hands of robbers. 2,000 years later, we have in our country today what are called Good Samaritan laws. So if you stop and help somebody whose car is broken down and something happens, you, you get a little extra grace for that. They're known as Good Samaritan laws. Here in Forsyth County, we have a great ministry downtown. Many of you have been part of Samaritan Ministries, feeding people who are hungry. We have the Samaritan medical clinic on the south side of town. Some in our church I think have been involved with. 
the largest nonprofit, or certainly one of the largest, in the state of North Carolina is Samaritan's Purse. There are literally, I'm sure, and have been over the years, <clears throat> tens of thousands of charities and ministries and orphanages and soup kitchens and homeless shelters who've taken the name Samaritan. All because of one story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago. And at the time he told it, the word Samaritan to his audience was a, a despised word. But we hold it in high regard. We name our ministries Samaritan, Good Samaritan. Well, one word from Jesus can change a world, and that's certainly true with this particular account. You're probably familiar with the account of the Good Samaritan, but there's a danger when we get so familiar with the passage of the Bible that we don't see deeply into it, and I hope God will speak to us through this passage today. Now, to understand <clears throat> what Jesus told and why he told it, it's, it's important, I think, to know just a few terms. The first one is the word lawyer. The passage begins in Luke 10, verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So apparently Jesus was teaching a group of people. We don't know how many, maybe 25, 30, maybe more. And apparently they're all sitting down because the scripture says a lawyer stood up to test him. And he asks a question of Jesus. He says, teacher, what do I do? What do I need to do to have eternal life? Now, a lawyer in Jesus' time was not like a lawyer today. Not somebody who works down at the courthouse and files briefs and things like that. A lawyer in Jesus' culture was an expert in the law of Moses, expert in the law of Scripture. The word in the New Testament is used almost interchangeably with the word scribe. So this lawyer is somebody with thorough knowledge, real thorough knowledge of the Old Testament Scripture. So when he says to Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus just puts it right back on him. He's a lawyer. And so Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he gives, gives a good answer. He says, well, it says in the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your, your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, well, do this and you'll live. And he, he, he wants to narrow the field of neighbor. And so the lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus begins to tell a story. He said, a certain man went down uh, Jerusalem to, to Jericho, and he fell in the midst of robbers, and they beat him and left him half dead. And then a priest came by. Now, a priest in Jesus' time was, of course, someone at the top of the religious hierarchy amongst Jews. A priest was a descendant of Aaron. They were in charge of sacrifices in the temple and the temple worship rituals. If Jesus were telling it today, he might have said, well, this is a, uh, uh, a pastor came by, a bishop came by. And the priest just saw the, the beaten man and passed him by. Next in Jesus' story, a Levite came by. A Levite is called a Levite because originally they were descendants of the tribe of Levi. They were Think of them as assistant priests. If it was today, we might say a, a lay leader or an associate pastor came by and likewise passed the man by. But then someone else comes by, 
the hero of the story, and this was a Samaritan. Now, to really appreciate what Jesus is telling here, we have to understand the relationship between the Jews of Jesus' time and the Samaritans. And it's hard to stress how great was the animosity between many of the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds by pure-blood Jews because years earlier, many of them had um, intermarried Jewish people with Assyrians. They held different beliefs about things like where God should rightly be worshipped. They had different beliefs about the Old Testament Scripture. The Samaritans just took the first five books of the Bible and not all the prophets. If it were today, you know, we might perhaps think of them if we were Jews as, as a cult. People who've just got some weird, weird beliefs. They're, they're variant beliefs. They're different from us. Shortly before this event in Luke 10, Jesus was traveling with his disciples and and, and some folks in a village of Samaria wouldn't receive Christ. And, and, and uh, James and John said, Lord, you want us to call, to call down fire from heaven on them? <laughs> That's what the prophet Elijah did in the Old Testament. Let's just call down fire on them. You can do that, Jesus. Jesus rebuked them for that statement. Perhaps the clearest picture of the relationship in Jews and Samaritans uh, in Jesus' day comes in the Gospel of John chapter 4. Jesus went to a, a well and there was a Samaritan woman and he asked her for a drink. And here's what she says. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And John 4 verse 9 says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In John chapter a, Jesus was speaking with some religious leaders, challenging their views. They grew furious. And here's what they said to him. I wouldn't say these words if they weren't in the Bible, but here's what they said to Jesus. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Can you believe a religious person says to God, Jesus is God. You have a demon. But in the same breath, you're a Samaritan. They couldn't say anything worse to him. This was the animosity then. Many Jews held great racial, social, religious prejudice and even hatred toward the Samaritans. And yet in the story, Jesus tells to this teacher of the law, the priest passes by. The man who's half dead, the Levite, passes by, but the Samaritan is the hero. And ever since that time, we call our ministries after the Samaritan. We have good Samaritan laws. Well, let's consider some key ideas in this teaching of Jesus. And I think the first one we should grasp is this, that religious pride and focus on self can keep us from obeying God's call. We read these words again in verses 30 and 32. The man had said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This was Jesus' answer. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst robbers. They stripped him. They beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where he was, saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, we don't know who the man was. We don't know if he was a Samaritan. We don't know if he was a Jew. Could have been a Jewish leader. The Bible doesn't tell us who he was. His identity is not important. It's his need that is important in Jesus' story. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles. It was considered a, a pretty treacherous journey. A lot of rocky crags and places that a robber could hide. <clears throat> sure enough, this man fell among robbers and they stripped him. They took his clothes because in Jesus' day, a person's clothes were almost their most valuable possessions. Oftentimes, remember when Jesus was on the cross, they cast lots for his clothing. And not only stripped him, they left him half dead. Now, I don't know if the man was conscious or not, but if he was conscious, I'm sure he was hoping for somebody to come along and help him. And if he was conscious, he might have seen a priest and said, what luck, a priest. My prayer's been answered. God not only sent somebody, he sent one of his own employees. But the priest passes him by. And then a Levite, another religious leader, he comes by and passes him by. Why would they pass him by? It's possible they were concerned that the man was dead and, and religious law cautioned them about being defiled by touching a dead body. Also possible they were like some, some of us who said, I, I've got to get to the church in 15 minutes. I don't have to stop and take care of him. Sometimes good activities blind us to needs, right? in front of us. But by noting the lack of care by a priest, by a Levite, Jesus is getting to religious pride and prejudice. Religious pride and focus on self can keep us from obeying God's needs, things he puts right in front of us. There's a second key idea that I think we need to grasp from the parable, from the teaching of Jesus, and it's this. My neighbor is anyone who's in need of my love and care. Now remember, the lawyer asked two questions. The first one is, what do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus sent him back to the law. His second question is, who's my neighbor? And that's the one Jesus is answering with the parable. The lawyer wants to, to narrow the scope of who the neighbor is. He wants a clearly identifiable group. Is it the other lawyers? Is it my fellow Jews? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus broadens it. And we read in the next verses, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, a denarius in Jesus' day was a day's wage for a laborer. So it's a pretty good bit of money. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus now says to the lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? I mean, this Samaritan, he, I think he went over and above with his generosity taking care of the man. Which of the three? I notice the lawyer's answer. He doesn't say 
the Samaritan. It's as if the word would leave a bad taste in his mouth so he doesn't say it. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and be like him. You go and do likewise. So in addressing love of neighbor, Jesus makes the hero of the story someone the lawyer might have despised. And he broadens the definition of neighbor to anyone who needs our or care. And a neighbor may well be somebody of a very different religion from us or race from us, maybe even harder, maybe even a different political party. I mean, suppose you see a car broken down in your neighborhood and there's a bumper sticker on that car with somebody's name who you absolutely despise. In setting up the Samaritan as the hero, the compassionate one, Jesus is doing more than calling for compassionate action. He's doing that. But he's also attacking racial religious pride and the barriers that they erect. So it causes us to search our own hearts. A third idea I think requires a little explanation. But as we study this passage, I think it's an idea we need to take with us. And that is that it is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus that frees us from our failures to love. I would say our prejudices, be they political, be they racial, be they social. And it, it not only frees us, the gospel does, it also empowers us to live with God's love. Now, why would I make this point? Let's go back to the start of this passage for a moment. Verses 25 to 28. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Jesus' teaching, expert in the law stands. He asks a good question, but Jesus knows he does it with the wrong motive. He's putting him to the test. Teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? So he sends him right back to the law. What does the law say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, neighbors yourself. Jesus said, that's correct. That's Jesus saying, that's the way to eternal life. Keep the law. Keep it perfectly. Jesus did this on another occasion, a few chapters later in Luke a rich young ruler came to him and said, Lord, what do I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Jesus said? You know the commandments. He started listening to the Ten Commandments. The man said, all these I've kept. Both the rich young ruler and the lawyer failed to understand something that Christ understood. He was sending them back to the law to show them their need, their inability to keep the law. Here's what the lawyer should have known when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength in your neighbors yourself. He should know, wow, I've never done that. I've not always loved God with my heart, mind, soul, and strength. What he lacked was humility. 
What the rich young ruler lacked when Christ took him back to the Ten Commandments was humility. When the law says, thou shalt not covet, it should have been a spotlight on his need to say, ah, I fall short, I covet. Jesus sent them back to the law because the law, Paul would later write, is our schoolmaster, our teacher to bring us to Christ. The law shows us our need for God's grace, his mercy, his salvation. The lawyer, when Jesus sent him back to the law, should have also known, as all teachers of the law would have known, the book of Isaiah that says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The lawyer should have known, as is written in Romans chapter 3, these words from the Psalms. These words come directly from both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The lawyer would have known them well. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The law should have made him humble instead of confident in his own righteousness. That's why Christ sent him to the law. That's the purpose and the work of the law. The humble see their need of God. Years later, another teacher of the law, Saul of Tarsus, who had come to faith in Jesus would take these same verses from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and writing to the church at Rome would apply them in the proper way, the correct way, to show us the effect they should have had on the human heart. And Paul then uses the law to lead to the gospel. None is righteous, no, not one. But he continues in verse 21, of Romans chapter 3, but now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That is, when the law teaches us, thou shalt not covet. When the prophets teach us, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. They bear witness to something greater than themselves. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all, Jew, non-Jew, teachers of the law, priests, Levites, Samaritans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified one way, one way, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The law shows us our need and leads us to the gospel. Now, here's the reason I'm stressing this so much. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is not directly answering the lawyer's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But the parable itself is addressing his question, who is my neighbor? Now, here's why I stress that. Jesus is not teaching here, Serve your way to salvation. Don't miss a person with need. If you want eternal life, make sure you don't miss one. Make sure you take care of every person whose needs you ever see in life. 
He's not telling us how Christians become Christians. He's telling us how Christians live. He's telling us how his followers act. We meet needs. And we don't let pride or prejudice or focus on self or religious or political barriers stand in the way of that. We meet needs that God leads us to meet. You know, Jesus didn't meet every need on the face of the earth. He did not heal every sick person. He didn't cast out every demon. He didn't feed every hungry person. But he did all the Father called him to do. And he did it perfectly. He completed the work that the Father had for him to do. He's not telling us by giving us the parable how Christians are born again, how they become Christians. He's telling us how Christians should live. We come to the Father through faith in the Son. So, three points by way of personal application. Number one, have I received the gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus? The law of God, the commands of God, the teachings of Christ, they're to show us our need, our need for a righteousness that is not our own. When we come to God through faith in Jesus, we are regenerated by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit, He's our guide. And and He leads us to the meeting of needs. He pours the love of God into our hearts. He breaks down those walls, those barriers of pride and prejudice. And He leads us to live lives of love, to take the gospel He's the only one that can lead us to fulfill our vision 2025, that as we grow in knowledge of the Word of God, we go out and take the compassion of Christ to the world. Next, I would raise this question. Is there anything in me that's making it hard to love certain people? Have I got a barrier of my own that makes it hard to love certain people? And if God's putting his finger on that, this would be a good day to confess that is sin and ask God to remove that barrier. And then thirdly, <clears throat> is there a particular neighbor God's calling me to serve in some way? I don't know about you, but I've, over my years as a Christian, <laughs> there have been many times that the Lord has put, put someone in my life and I'm not thinking of anybody in our church right now, someone in my life who's hard to love, hard to love, and required a lot of prayer, ongoing prayer. Not a change of heart overnight, but but a, a process of changing me by praying for someone who's really, really difficult. I think God helps us grow in that way. Maybe God's putting somebody in your heart that's particularly difficult to serve. Let's pray about these things this morning. Would you join me? Father, how we thank you for the power of one word from Jesus. Samaritan. It has so shaped our culture, so shaped our lives, our desire to care for people in need. Lord, use this part of your word to lead us rightly. If I've taught any of it wrongly, Lord, please overrule that and lead your people in the right way. And I pray for any 
listening today who have never humbled themselves before the cross of Jesus to say, Lord, I cannot by any means earn or deserve salvation. I receive what Jesus did for me in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And Lord, help us now to follow you faithfully, to follow you into the world as people who are instruments of your blessing, your generosity, your kindness, your care. Lead us, Lord, we pray. And I pray today, Father, for especially your encouragement among, upon your people. That we would have a greater awareness of your loving kindness and your goodness. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, um, I've got something really exciting to share with you. It'll take just a few minutes before our, our, we continue to worship the Lord here. But it, it would not be a stretch to say this, that this is something um, that's been a long time in coming to be able to share this very, very, very good news with you this morning. And I'm super excited about it. Many of you know that we had our first worship services at church on March 21st, 1999 at Forsyth Country Day School. Uh, in the following years, we were able to save a good bit of, of money as our church grew, and we were able to buy this land on which our church sits today. It's actually about 27 acres. Uh, beautiful land behind the building, beautiful prayer trail, some of you have seen back there. And after paying for that land, uh, we realized it was time to build a, a building here. And we began meeting with architects and, and builders, those on our building team. I look out there and see some of you who are, are part of that. I was not part of that process. I have no skills for that. But when it came time for the building of this building, we had a capital campaign. I think at that time there were 169 pledges made to the building, and some of those were children and youth. So it was a relatively small group of people. The cost of this initial building was just over $5 million, and we raised just over $2 million in three-year pledges. So the building was built. We, we moved into the building, but, but we scratched one thing from the initial plan. We kept the children's classrooms and space for Kids Rock, but we scratched from that initial plan to save money the adult classroom building, small classroom building that would have been built. And that got the cost down to just over $5 million. So all those years in this building, we moved in here February of 2006, we have had a, a significant mortgage payment, um, roughly $20,000 a month. Well, in 2017, we began praying about our vision for the coming years and came up with our vision 2025. Going on into 2018, we realized this vision driven by spiritual growth, uh, discipleship, really showed us the need for a classroom building. The only classes we had were the back of the sanctuary where some of you are sitting now. The wall used to be right where the, where the overhang begins now. And so we went into our Beyond initiative, we called it, this campaign, with about $750,000 of remaining debt for our 
first campaign. Cost of this new project, the two-story classroom building, the, uh, the, the taking down of the sanctuary walls, the kids' playground and other work done in the building, was roughly $4.36 million. We raised $3.72 million in three-year pledges. But before we took the pledges, we made a decision. People who pledged knew this. That we would take 10% of pledges received and invest them beyond our walls to meet the needs of others who weren't able to build a church building in Mongolia or Kinar or somewhere like that. Well, now we're roughly three and a half years later from that time in 2018. And after taking on that $4 million plus project and going into it with the debt, I couldn't be more excited to tell you that as of last month, we have retired all of our debt. Yes, all of it. Praise the Lord. All glory to Him and praise to Him. We have no debt for the first time in 18 plus years. What's really exciting about this is that as part of our vision, we anticipated significantly increasing the percentage of our budget that we could invest in meeting the needs of others beyond the walls of our building. And we've already begun state taking steps, looking toward uh, church planting opportunities in other parts of the world where we can come along and assist others who are serving where the Holy Spirit is working in a powerful way. You'll hear more about that as this comes into clarity and particularly this fall as we approach our international missions time. One last thing I'll say though, some have asked, well, what about if we haven't fulfilled our pledge yet? And we do have a significant amount of, of money from the campaign that, that has not yet been received. The reason things have gone so well is so many people either gave more than they pledged or, or didn't pledge but gave abundantly initially and we're so thankful. The question is, should I still fulfill it? And if so, that, it would certainly be a big help to us. We went into this campaign with a building fund that people continued to give to from our first campaign. That enabled us to pay for architects and things like that. And always there are certain building enhancements or parking things that are needed that are not covered in a traditional facilities maintenance fund. But the main thing I want to say now is Thank you to our Lord and our God. If we had known COVID was coming, I don't even think we would have done this building project. But in the midst of it, he has done, as the scripture says, exceedingly, abundantly, beyond. And that's where we got the name of the campaign from. Ephesians chapter 3. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we could ask or think. Would you join me now as we just thank him. Thank our Lord who's right now. Father, all glory to you and you alone, our Lord and our God. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. Thank you for what you've done. Now, Lord, may we be faithful stewards going ahead. And may your blessing be on your people for their great generosity and liberality to your work in your church. We pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.